1: new episodes every week wherever you get your podcasts search for the family road trip
0: trivia podcast hi friends are you looking for a new podcast maybe something you can share with your littles something that has some storytelling in it well then look no further we have story time with philip and mommy where my son and i sit and discuss all the great books that you might love while we read them so little golden books berenstein bears and even the new classics like bluey we sit down we read we discuss and we have so much fun doing it come and join us subscribe wherever you get your podcasts hi reader welcome to reading bug adventures created written and produced by the reading bug our family-owned children's bookstore in california Please visit us online at TheReadingBug.com, and don't miss our limited-time Back to School Reading Bug Box at ReadingBugBox.com. A monthly delivery of hand-selected books, matched perfectly to every child's age, interest, and reading level, is a great way to encourage and reward all young readers as they head back to school this fall. And speaking of the fall, Season 2 of Reading Bug Adventures is coming in August, so be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know about new episodes. But while we all wait for new adventures, we wanted to introduce you to some great authors in bonus episodes like this one. We often have authors visiting our store and the schools nearby. And when they visit, we ask them questions that we can share with you. This week, we've got a wonderful interview with Tim Myers, author, songwriter, and storyteller, who's here to tell us a story, sing one of his best songs, and answer questions from me and The Reading Bug. So, reader, are you ready? Let's fly to our bookstore in California together. It's time for a Reading Bug Adventures author visit.
2: Reading Bug, what are you doing? Oh, hi, Lauren. I've got a very special surprise for you today. A visit from an old friend of ours.
0: Oh, I love surprises. Who is it?
2: Well, he's a children's book author with more than 14 published books. He's also a very talented singer, songwriter, and storyteller. And he was one of the very first authors to visit our store when we
0: opened in 2009. Well, there's only one person who fits that description, Reading Bug. Our good friend, Tim Myers. That's right. Tim is on his way right
2: now, and I can't wait to see him and hear one of his stories.
0: Tim is an incredible storyteller. Do you remember when he first came to the store? Oh, yes. Tim came to the store and sat down with a group of 40 children who he'd never met before and who didn't know him at all and began telling a story. No book, no pictures, nothing. And his story continued for at least a half an hour. Now, I didn't think it was possible for children to sit still that long and listen to a story. But they did. They were completely enchanted by Tim and listened to every word. It was magical. That's right.
2: Storytelling is a beautiful art form, and Tim is especially good at it. I love that he tells stories from many different countries and cultures, too. In both his children's books and stories, he tells. Oh, and look, here comes Tim now. Hi, Tim. Welcome back to The
0: Reading Bug. Hi, Tim. Thanks for coming.
1: Hi, Reading Bug. Hi, Lauren. I am so happy to be here.
0: Tim, I know you have a new book coming out this fall or next spring called "Yao Bai and the Egg Pirates. And I'm really excited to talk to you about that and ask all sorts of questions. But right now the Reading Bug is jumping up and down on my shoulder because she wants to hear you tell a story. Would you mind starting by telling us a story?
1: I would love to tell a story. This story is called The Legend of Not Grafton. Uh, I learned it from T. Crofton Croker, who's a writer uh, from long ago, an Irish writer. He actually, the story was told to him by an Irish peasant in 1815 out in the west of Ireland at the moat of Knock Grafton. They were standing next to it, and this man, this farmer, told T. Crofton Croker the story. Talk about the oral tradition. Um, I think you have to know before we start that in the old days, people did not think of the fairies as merely sweet, flitting little creatures. The fairies had magic. They could have anything they wanted just for the wishing, which made them powerful, which made them dangerous. In the old days, people did not even talk about the fairies openly because you didn't want to attract their attention. You never knew. An encounter with a fairy might mean that you were left with a bag of gold or with a donkey's head. I mean, you just, and and people knew too that the fairies would stum- sometimes steal away beautiful children to serve as their, I don't know, amusements in the world of of fae. So people didn't call them the fairies, they would call them the good folk or the, you know, the, you didn't call them the she or the fae, because that would attract them. Um, years and years ago, in the beautiful but often rain shrouded glen of a Harlow in Southwest Ireland uh, lived a man named Lusmore. Now the Galti Mountains run along this valley and they're tall and often again choked with fog at their tops. Uh, Lusmore lived in this little, beautiful little village called uh, Kappa. He uh, was very talented. His fingers were nimble. And he had learned to plate straw into various things. So, for example, he would go to the marshes, he would cut the reeds, he would dry them. And then with his quick hands, he would turn them into mats and hats and baskets. And that's how he made his living. He lived uh, in a little cabin on the edge of the the village. The thing about Lusmore, though, He had been born with a great hump on his back, and this disfigurement was such a burden to him that he walked bent over, and he was very slow of pace, as you can imagine. But Lesmore had a heart that shone through all the burdens he had to face. He was beloved in the village. He was the one who would always help a neighbor. He was the one who would play with the children. He was the one who would always scratch the head of a dog, feed a wandering cat. Lesmore was good kind, quick with a joke, and people loved him. They called him Lusmore because he wore a little sprig of the Lusmore or the foxglove flower in the brim of his hat. Uh, the Lusmore is uh, very famous among the fairies because its leaves are green and its berries are red. Uh, the fairies can look like whatever they want and be whatever size they want, but they often take the form of small human-like creatures and they wear green clothes with red hats. So at the approach of a human, In a trice, they slip into the foxglove, into the Lusmore, and they look just like the red berries and the green leaves. So Lusmore one day was heading for a fair down in the pretty little village of Cahir, which was some ways down the road along the valley. Uh, This was how he usually made his money. He would uh, go to fairs. Fairs in those days were gatherings of people on weekends when people weren't working, almost like a, a portable shopping mall, I think you could say. There'd be horse races, there'd be wrestling, people would be selling their wares, there'd be food eat, music, dancing, and all the rest. And Lusmore made his way down there, a, a slow walker, as I mentioned, um, and set up his little stall and began to sell his goods. Now, late in the afternoon, an old woman came and started dickering with him over some mat or bag or whatever it was. And he could tell that she was alone, that she was a widow, that she was lonely. So he let her go on and he sold the, the bag to her, at a cheap price. He shouldn't have, but he couldn't help it. And then he talked to her more. The upshot of it all was when he got ready to head back to his home, to to Kappa, it was already late in the afternoon, and the sun was starting to go down. And he thought to himself, I've got a long, long, dark path ahead of me. Uh, But he set out anyway, thinking he might be able to make it. Now, luckily, it was a beautiful mid-September evening. The air was warm. There was a full moon overhead. And as he made his way along the road, he whistled a bit and sang a bit and thought about this and that. And just about midnight, he found himself at the moat of Knock Grafton. Now, when we say moat, we often think of a watery surround protecting a castle. And that, of course, is one meaning of it. But a moat in Ireland also means an ancient wall of stone that has tumbled down and usually are gro- has been grown over. So the moat of Notgrafton looked uh, like a small, long hill, uh, 10 or 15 feet high with, you know, like 45 degree slope, but thick with grass. Uh, the stones of somebody's dream of power or wealth or whatever slept within it. Uh, and Lusmore was getting tired. There were a few cows sleeping in the little pasture across the bit of dirt road. So he thought to himself, I'll just lie here against the moat and sleep for a bit, maybe a few hours. So he lay down against the slope. He pulled up the collar of his coat against the slight chill of the evening. It wasn't bad. And he fell asleep. As he slept, he dreamed. And in his dream, he heard a song. And as he slowly woke, as the dreamer within him woke to what was happening in the dream, he realized the song was the most beautiful, ravishing thing he had ever heard. And it was as if his soul just left his body. First, a voice or two, human or not, he couldn't tell. Then more voices, harmonies, interwoven threads, counterpoint. And then he began to realize that the sounds of the natural world were being played into the music. Waves rushing up against the shore of a lake, wind suffing through the leaves of the forest. And he was just thunderstruck and suddenly he woke up. the moon was high overhead, the cows were still sleeping. He thought, saints be praised, what a dream. Oh, that music though, if only I could fall back asleep and hear the music again. And suddenly he realized he could hear the music wide awake. And as he looked around trying to hear where it was coming from, he realized it was coming from down in the moat. So he quickly threw the side of his head there, feeling the cool tickling of the grass stems against his ear, and he could hear it, and the music was coming from down under the ground. Well, again, he was just enchanted, enthralled, and his eyes were bright, and he just listened to the music. But after a while, he realized there were only two words to the song that were sung over and over. Monday, Tuesday. Again and again. And he began to grow a little weary of it, and he thought, on a whim, I'll just add my part. So when the words came around again, Monday, Tuesday, he sang, and Wednesday, and suddenly out of the air, just out of the blue a whirlwind just exploded in front of him, scrabbling everything, whirling it around, the dust of the road, the chaff, the leaves, and he sees with horror that the whirlwind is heading straight for him, and it just envelops him. And now he's inside, swinging around inside this violent spiral, feels himself lifted up, feels it go down, and realizes, if it's this far down, I'm underground with it. And suddenly, he felt it begin to slow. And you'll see this with the dust devil, or a little whirlwind of leaves, The leaves of the little bits of chaff slowly fall out of it, and Lusmore himself suddenly fell, landed, splat, on a floor. He looked down at the floor, and he couldn't believe it. The beautiful, strange parquetry patterns of carved wood of different colors had strange symbols and a writing he'd never seen. He looked to his left, and he saw an expanse of green velvet curtains. Suddenly, the wind came up behind them and blew them open, and he was looking on an ocean at sunset. They fell to again. The wind came up again, blew them up and he was looking on a valley hushed under winter snow, and he knew that both of them were real. To his right, he saw a cave wall dripping with green glowworms. He thought to himself, saints be preserved, I'm in the fairy wrath. The fairy wrath is a fort or a, a place. The fairies, again, can be anything, but they often take that, as I said before, a small form, and they often live underground. Then he looks up and he sees the fairies themselves running straight toward him. And the larger that the fairies looks him right in the eye and shakes his finger and says, "Lusmore, more, doubt not nor deplore, for the hump that you bore on your back is no more. Look down at the floor, lust more. And with a chill running up his spine, he looks and there just to his left is a lump of flesh on the, on the floor. And he reaches back with his hands and sure enough, his own hump is gone. He jumps to his feet, hits his head on the roof of the cavern, falls back down, laughing, doesn't care. And the fairies escort him by the scores into the fairy hall. He's never seen a sight like this, never imagined it. The multicolored pillars, the hundreds and maybe thousands of fairies. And there at the head of the hall, there's the fairy king himself on a tiny throne. And they're all saluting Lusmore and cheering for him. And the musicians are playing. They seat him at the king's right hand. And the king speaks about how wonderful Lusmore was a great musician and has totally changed the art of music in the fairy kingdom. And Lusmore's thinking, all I did was sing two words, but the fairy seemed to like it. He sat there. The king gave him a drink from the king's own drinking cup, put it in Lusmore's hands. It was about as big as a thimble, but he saw it was made from driftwood and daffodils woven together. And when he took a drink of that liquor, he thought, if the sun had a taste, this is what it would taste like. Next to him, the musicians started playing and the fairies all started dancing. He looked down and he saw that some of the musicians were playing walnut shells split in half with little white cat hairs across them using bee stingers as their violin bows. He saw there were uh, little drums with mouse hair and little sticks, there were pipers, there were harpers. He drank more, he toasted more, he was toasted more, he grew dizzy, he fell asleep. Well, he woke up. And he was lying on the moat of Knockgrafton. Grafton. The sun was shining overhead. The cows were now up and they were grazing. And he thought, "What? what, what a glorious dream, what a dream. But he looked down and saw that he was wearing completely new clothes. And again, with the chill running through him, he reached back and felt, and his hump was gone he jumped up and practically danced his way back to Kappa. And people in Kappa who knew him, had known him all their lives, didn't recognize him. He had to tell them who he was. And you can imagine that this story spread the breadth and length of Ireland like wildfire. Now, down in the south, in D.C.'s country, in County Cork, there was a woman who had a son named Jack Madden. And Jack Madden, like Lesmore, had been born with a great hump on his back, which was a great burden to him. But unlike Lusmore, Jack Madden was a peevish and spiteful and unkind man, and he was particularly harsh with his mother, who waited on him hand and foot, heartbroken over years for what he had to bear. Well, when she heard the story of Lusmore, she went right up to Kappa. She found herself at a little cabin on the edge of the town. She said, saw a man there plating goods. She said, might you be able to tell me, if you could, sir, and I'm not pressing you to do it if you can't, But I am looking for a man in this neighborhood or precinct thereabouts who would go by the name of Lusmore. And if you were telling me where he might be found, I'd be grateful. The Irish are very rarely direct. And he said, Madam, I could tell you. I will tell you. I'll take great joy in telling you. For isn't it something that the very man you're asking for is sitting in front of you right now telling you that he's the man? Well, of course, he told her the whole story and he didn't leave out a single detail. And the upshot of that was that she brought her son Jack by pony cart all the way from DC's country up to the moat of Knock Grafton just as the sun was going down two nights later. She left him there, he knew just what to do, and she stepped away rather quickly because the fairies, you never know. Jack sat there twiddling his thumbs, waiting impatiently. As midnight came, sure enough, he could hear the music coming from the moat. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And Jack had thought to himself, this lost more. He gets himself a new suit of clothes and the hump taken off his back. I'll add two days in and get two new suits of clothes. So when the fairy round comes again, He balls out like an old donkey. And Thursday and Friday and suddenly, just as the story said, the whirlwind leaps up out of thin air, violently twists toward him, sucks him up into it, lifts him, drops him, and he finds himself on the floor. And he knows immediately that he's in the fairy wrath. And he looks up and here comes a passel of the fairies coming straight toward him with their eyes big and bright. And he thinks, ah, now, now I'm for it. Truer words were never spoken. The biggest of the little fairies said, Jack Madden, Jack Madden, Jack Madden. Your words came so bad in the tune our hearts gladdened. This castle you're had in, that your life we may sadden. Two humps for Jack Madden. And Jack realized with horror that he could not move, couldn't lift his hands from the floor, couldn't lift his legs. He was frozen by some kind of fairy spell. And as he watched in terror, he saw the fairies cross over to a lump of flesh there on the floor and lift it and come around behind him. And he felt the weight as it was pushed down on his own and by fairy magic sat there forever, it seemed. And then they beat him and kicked him out of the wrath. When his mother came in the morning at first light, she saw him there, his clothes torn, his face bruised, and she didn't say a word. She loaded him into the pony cart and took him back home to D.C.'s country. Sometimes the story is told different ways and you hear different endings. I've heard the story told whereby Jack remained a hard-hearted, sad, despairing man who took his despair out on others. I've also heard that something changed in Jack. Sometimes light has to come out of darkness. Some people say that Jack's heart began to thaw that day, that he realized that he had brought that on himself. And that he began to change, and that his heart warmed the way the spring will bring its warmth to a countryside after a long, hard winter. And that he became kind and giving and good, and he was especially grateful to his mother and worked, did all he could to make it up to her for all she'd gone through for him. And that's the way I like to tell the story. So at the end of the story, I say, snip, snap, snout. And you all say, the tale's told out. Snip, snap, snout.
2: The The tale's tale's told told out. out.
1: Thank you.
0: Yay! (laughs) Tim, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Before you arrived, we were just remembering your first visit to the store and how you were able to captivate all of us with just the sound and inflection in your voice and the power of your words, just like you did right now. It was magical. How do you do it? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, first of all, Lauren, thank you very much for having me today and for saying that. It is uh, really interesting that in an age where we are to some degree starting to think that what's captivating is digital or is video and everything, and I'm not against any of those things, I think they're wonderful, but we sometimes forget the very basic capacity of the human mind and human heart and the human ear to love just plain language particularly in the form of stories. So obviously in the past there have been poems and chants and things that have, we know that they meant a lot to people in those cultures because they've been recorded or passed down, you know, that way. Um, And that's not over. So one of the things I remember uh, realizing at some point early on was that people would talk about the oral tradition like it was in the past. And it was always presented that way when I was in school. And I'm like, wait a minute, the oral tradition is living today there. And of course, part of this has to do with the big revival of storytelling in the United States and in a lot of places. Uh, but there are plenty of places in the world where the oral tradition is still active, where people either have little literacy or no literacy. Um, but even in highly literate, even digital culture societies, there's a tremendous amount of oral tradition. Um, playground tradition, for example, for kids is a good example of oral tradition that continues you know, with various modifications and things like it has for a long, long time. Um, But you have this waiting hunger in the minds of human beings for stories. Now, obviously, a person has to develop the skill of storytelling. It's not simple, and anybody who's ever tried to tell a joke with a tight punchline knows it's. You have to do it right, but there is that waiting hunger that's always there, and kids are particularly. They make no bones about it. They're just like, oh my god, this story. You know, they have that openness, which is one of the reasons I love telling to kids. So you you do you practice those aspects of craft that you know you can talk about in terms of what makes a story work. But to me, the big thing is if the storyteller has that skill level and really feels the story, if the story means something to him or her, then that tends to translate into the way that it's told, and listeners usually respond to that. Particularly, one of my favorite things to do, and I usually do, is to tell traditional stories, which I refer to as transrealist stories, the kind that have a, a fantasy element of some kind. But these are stories that also have They've stood the test of time and come down through generations of people. Clearly, there's something that really speaks really deeply in that story to the audience. And I I can't tell you what a wonderful feeling it is to have one of those stories making its way out into the world again through my own mouth. And to share that with an audience, it's, it's a beautiful feeling.
2: I've always been curious if someone told you stories when you were little, Tim. Is this how you got started as a storyteller and author?
1: Isn't that interesting? You know, because this to me is a really good question. No, I did not hear stories as a child. In fact, I was not in a very book-friendly house. And it wasn't—my parents weren't against it or anything. My dad was a doctor, O B G Y N, gone all the time. My mom was a housewife. Um, I can remember very few, the very few books I had, which I still treasure, like the Reader's Digest Treasury for Young Readers. I can, I could give you pages from that book and about the pictures and that kind of. Thing. So clearly there was something in me, but I didn't know it. I didn't consciously think that I was interested in books and stories. Um, I kind of gravitated to them half consciously, not always consistently. Uh, what happened to me in terms of storytelling was when I became a, a father. Th- that was when I started telling stories, and that, and then it just. In me, it just exploded, and my kids, my two sons, uh, took to it like fish to water. And, of course, part of that thing was, too, I saw there that that would have happened to me. Were you? Did you have stories when you were growing up?
0: I mean, we were, we were definitely a, a book-friendly household, yeah, but no, I don't yeah. think there was that imagination used to tell a story. Right. And the book in front of us was right. an easier way to go, right. which is what storytelling is so interesting to me. How do you create the stories that you tell?
2: Are some of them completely made up? Or do you always tell traditional stories that have been passed down, like the one you told today?
1: Storytellers are generally—they're better at lying than most people are. So I can make up stories, but no, most of, I, I like to use stories that are already established and, and to give them my take as I, as I tell them. But that's so interesting to me, too, to think that a house—any house where children and parents, children and adults are sharing books is an explosively literacy-oriented house. It's, right. a, it's a powerful cornucopia for all of those lives. But storytelling, when people do that, it takes it up a little notch. What's interesting is there are actually houses where people don't, households where people aren't book readers, but there's a lot of storytelling that goes on, But it's, and I know this from a number of my students have talked about it. There's a lot of off-the-cuff storytelling. Usually people are telling personal family stories, sitting around a table, you know, whatever. Uh, And some of my students have talked a lot about what that is. Some of my college students have talked about what that has meant to them as storytellers. So there's the, you know, the very traditional storyteller, which is traditional folktales, myths, that kind of thing. Then there's the family with people just talking about what happened to Uncle Joe and the salesman came and all that. And then there's that literacy book-oriented house, or there's a mix of all three. And actually, My family is a mix of all three. And sometimes a very, very chaotic place. Yes. In a very good way, as you guys know, I'm sure.
0: Well, I think with all the media today, I mean, I think... So many households are a chaotic place. I mean, everyone right. has their iPads, and they have their books still, uh, but they have the television, and there's yeah. radio, and this new thing called a podcast. Yes, exactly. And and more people are listening, and I think everybody wants a little bit of everything. Right. But um, one of the things that um, I was just reading in a, a chapter book that's actually coming out by um, James Patterson and Chris Grabenstein coming out in the fall called uh, Max Einstein. Um, at, she she kind of channels Albert Einstein, and one of Albert Einstein's quotes was, Imagine Imagination is more important than knowledge.
1: You know, and people cite that quote, It's funny. I think that quote is cited widely because we have a sense that we are in danger on that account. And you will never hear me say a word against knowledge. I am a university lecturer. I write nonfiction, argument, critical thinking pieces, but it is not an either-or situation. And right now, ascendant in our culture tends to be these things that have to do with knowledge and often not even enough knowledge, much more information and data, which are also very important things. Well, let's keep them. Let's, let's teach people how to be really versed in how to work with all those things. But for God's sakes, let's also teach them about imagination. Data is essentially inert. Without human imagination, where does it go? And I love the—what was it? It's like—I uh, think, think Mencken quoted this as a Japanese adage. Um, knowledge without wisdom is like a load of books on an ass's back. You can pile them ten feet high, but you know where he's not reading them; he's just carrying them around. So I think that's I think that quote is I think that quote is kind of I think people are hungry for more imagination than they're getting. On the other hand, we also have thriving arts and movies and everything in America. One of the things I like to do, though, for example, when I do school visits. Uh, you can do marvelous things with tech at a school visit, and I'm, I'd love to develop that someday, but right now when I go in, it's 100% language. It's 100% spoken language or a little bit of print because I'm reading a book. I want to give those kids an experience, to refer back to your kind words about the story I told here. I want those kids to be carried away by nothing but words, and th- that capacity is something that has to be developed in children as well as adults.
0: Speaking of being carried away by words, I know you're also a songwriter and a singer, and you've written some beautiful songs that are stories in their own right.
2: Ooh, do you think you could sing something for us today? I'd love to hear a song, and I know everyone listening would too.
1: Reading bug, calm down. We'll get to
0: it. <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks, Tim. Here's a special treat, an original song written and performed by Tim Myers, It's story time.
1: Seems the world is always full of trouble War and murder, greed, despair, and hate It was all right there in the morning paper At my gate And sometimes my little girl would ask me Daddy, why do people have to That I could give a kind of answer Each night So as the night grew darker Up the stairs we'd climb The old clock chimed It was story time Stories say that courage beats the giant That kindness freely given is returned That evil always is its own undoing As it burns And so we put the world back together Remind ourselves of all that's good and The story says that if you face the monster, you will come through. So as the night grew darker, up the stairs we'd climb, the old clock chimed. It was story time. Those precious nights We sat together An open book Enough to re grown now she's a mother and how we love her wild heart little boy world still needs mending so she gives him that same joy as the night grows darker up the stairs they climb the old clock chimes Story time.
0: Wow, that was beautiful, Tim. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: That song was a story itself, wasn't it? I'm curious, Tim. When you write books like Yao Bai and the Egg Pirates, do you ever use parts of your storytelling and translate those into a book?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I didn't pick up on that early on, and I st- one, at one point I started going, oh, my God, that story. So, for example, I wrote a, long, uh, a, a short story, I should say, for adults, a science fiction story, and it's set on another planet, and it's an Earth-terran anthropologist interacting with some people whose planet is about to be mined and timbered into, uh, you know, obscurity. Uh, and he has a very sad message to give them. And they're trying to explain to him why it's going to be okay. And of course, the point of the story is it's not going to be okay. This planet's going to be overrun. Um, and they tell him a story, which I took directly from this. Uh, it's a Congolese story that I tell a folktale and turned it into a story, set it there. So I, I adapt things like that all the time. It's um, You don't want to do it too much because these are public domain stories. I mean, they've been around for generations, sometimes much, much longer. Um, But some of them are just irresistible. There are so many magnificent stories. Like, we know from research that the top nine stories, folktales known in the world, are the big famous European ones, right? Cinderella and etc. And I love those stories, right? They have their problems, but I love those stories. People don't realize that Every culture that we know of has a storytelling tradition. For example, a lot of people don't understand it. Americans don't know about the Japanese storytelling tradition, which is fabulous. It's African traditions, Native American traditions, all over the world. Chinese stories, I mean, everywhere. And for me, I almost feel like I'm cheating, like I broke into some storeroom that nobody else knows about, and I'm just hauling out diamonds and rubies and things and selling them on the street because these stories are incredible, and they're just as good, they're just as powerful as Cinderella's, you know, Snow White as Beauty and the Beast, and a lot of people don't know them. Now, obviously, we're a more diverse society, so more people do know them, and around here, people come from a lot of different places. They know them, but that's another beautiful thing about being a storyteller. I I love taking a story that an audience has never heard before that I know is going to just kill them because it's a great story from another culture.
0: Speaking of different cultures, is there one that you relate to more or whose stories are just better than everyone else's?
1: You know, it's funny because I I think I might have a slight... No. I every time I learn more stories from new cultures I see that there actually is it, it is such an utterly human thing so we have it because so we have problems because of globalizing but overall I think globalizing is really a wonderful thing and it's creating tensions because it's a shift but one of the amazing things is suddenly the storehouse of human culture is being slowly open to. Everybody. So, particularly when it comes to these stories. So, I'll read a, you know, a story from Bengal, and I'm, I'm like, this story. Everybody should know this story. This should be as known. Foolish Jackal, by the way, is this story. Foolish Jackal is a fantastic story. This story should be known by everybody. Uh, so, even I tend to like Irish stories a lot, but I can't. Even the Irish stories and the Irish have an astonishing capacity for language when it comes to storytelling. They don't outshine anybody. Everybody is unbelievably good. Of course, when we say that, we mean the, what, four to three to 2% of the stories that have lasted because they're good, because obviously the storytelling world goes through its own winnowing process to get rid of what doesn't stick. Um, But no, I can't put any above the others, yeah. Okay,
2: Lauren, is it time to talk about Yao Bai and the Egg Pirates yet? Of course, Reading Bug. Let's get
0: to it. Tim, tell us about... Yao Bay and the Egg Pirates.
1: Yao yeah, Bay and the Egg Pirates. Yeah, it's not a normal phrase, as we were saying earlier. <laughs> um, so uh, I love California. I, I grew up in Colorado. Colorado is my home, but so it's Santa Clara, California, now. And uh, we took a trip to the Fairlands one day. Those islands, twenty-six miles off. Uh, off of San Francisco, I got incredibly seasick. Besides that, it was an unbelievable day. Humpbacks breaching, I saw a shark, seabirds, and I started thinking about that island because I learned that day a little bit about the egg wars. So back in the gold rush, so many miners came to California so fast that food was a terrible problem. I've read that in the gold rush days, especially early on, miners would pay for a pair before it grew on a branch. They'd have a bud on the branch and a miner would put a little piece of paper around it and say, this is my pear. When it grows, I'm going to get it. Uh, Whether that story is true or not, this is what I read. So the thing about the Farallons was they had millions of seabirds out there. In fact, the numbers have built back up. And mers, common mers lay eggs that are about three times the size of a chicken egg and are very thick shelled. So here's an un- is like an egg factory, 26 miles off the coast of a place where thousands and thousands of miners need food. So people started going out and harvesting the eggs. And a guy set up a company. And there was contention. We want to get eggs too. Some guys rode out in three boats. There was a war. Two men were shot dead. So as I'm reading about this, I'm thinking about um, I'm thinking about what it would be like to be a kid. And and of course, what you also hear is that there were egg pirates who would come and steal people's eggs once they'd gathered them. And I started thinking about a a, a fictional Chinese boy, because I'd also been to China Camp, which is up there on on San Pablo Bay, North North San Francisco Bay. And um, I thought, what if this boy and his family members were out there, what if they decided to go out to the island get some eggs and come back, and they're confronted by egg pirates. And I was looking for a way that they could do this, and I came up with a way. So there's some delicious trickery in this book as to how they deal with the egg pirates. I doubt this I mean, I think it's possible this could have happened. Uh, I doubt it ever did, but it's, it's one of those books where it's like Marianne Moore says, the, the poet puts uh, imaginary toads in real gardens. So I, I have a lot of real history and it's deeply, deeply researched. Uh, but then there's like a historical fiction story in the middle of it. Uh, it was incredibly fun to write and the art from my illustrator, Bonnie Pang, is fantastic. And it's about whales.
0: The new book is Yao Bai and the Egg Pirates, available this fall or next spring at The Reading Bug, thereadingbug.com, or any independent bookstore.
1: I just have to say one last thing. The Reading Bug is the absolute bomb. I love this place. Every time I come in this place, I'm obnoxiously complimentary to you all. I'm never going to stop that. It's going to keep going. What you guys are doing is fantastic, and it's so good for the world.
0: Thank you. Yes, thank you, Tim. That's incredibly kind of you to say. We can't wait to see you again soon. Until then, goodbye. Our Author Visits podcast is produced by The Reading Bug, our family-owned children's bookstore in California. And sound mixing and mastering is done by the team at Resonate Recordings. To learn more about us, visit thereadingbug.com. And to get great books picked by independent bookstore experts at The Reading Bug, like me, and shipped monthly to your door, visit readingbugbox.com. Reading Bug Box offers a personalized selection of great books based on each child's unique age, interests, and reading level. Exciting and engaging children at every age with great literature and exclusive content like games, craft ideas, author-signed copies, and much more. It's the kind of subscription service that only an independent bookstore can provide. For photos and fun details about our boxes, follow us on social media at Reading Bug Box. A very special thanks to Tim Myers for joining us today. Thanks also to the entire staff of The Reading Bug and to you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in and keep looking for more from all of us at The Reading Bug. Bye-bye.
1: Seems the world is always full of trouble War and murder, greed, despair and hate It was all right there in the morning paper Sometimes my little girl would ask me Daddy, why do people have to fight? Learned that I could give a kind of answer Each night So as the night grew darker Up the stairs we'd climb The old clock chimed It was story time The stories say that courage beats the giant That kindness freely given is returned That evil always is its own undoing As it burns And so we put the world back together remind ourselves of all that's good and true the story says that if you face the monster you will come through so as the night grew darker up the stairs we'd climb the old clock chimed Was story time those precious nights we sat together an open book enough to read. grown now she's a mother and how we love her wild heart little boy world still needs mending so she gives him that same joy as the night grows darker up the stairs they climb the old clock chimes time.